Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Our topic today may be small in size, but its impact on quail and quail habitat can be much larger. I'm describing the desert termite. Dr. Dale visits today with a longtime range scientist who is a foremost authority on the insect, Dr. Daryl Eckert. Enjoy the conversation as we go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Thank you, Gary, and it's always a privilege to work with you on Texas Farm Bureau over Appreciate all your efforts. Got a good podcast for you today. It's a little bit more technical with our information than some of them may have been in the past, so I encourage you to put your thinking cap on, get a pen and pencil if you want to jot down some notes, and be ready to give us some further thought as you travel on down the road to your hunting lease and so forth. Speaking of your hunting lease or your land, uh, Quail season started about three weeks ago, so uh, some of you have already been afield. I would always appreciate, again, I talk to you all about being my, the eyes and ears all the time, so I always appreciate your reports. Uh, I don't need to know your honey hole, but I would like to know the county, and did you find uh, two cubbies a day or 22 cubbies a day? So always interested in that. And our subject today is on a critter called Nathomatermes tubiformes. Now, that sounds pretty ominous, and I guess it could be if you're a certain plant and so forth. That's the desert termite. Desert termite. So I encourage you to go go to Google and Google an image of desert termite so you know what we're talking about. And we'll go into quite a bit about their biology and their impacts on quail habitat as we move through the podcast. But first of all, a question. There are numerous factors that affect quail habitat in rolling plains. We all have our certain cause du jour. We talk about drought, we talk about fire, we talk about uh, fire ants, different things that we like to think are maybe the most important thing. I always caution people to think about, about the fact that quail decline is not a single shot. There are multiple cylinders operating simultaneously. In that respect, it's a revolver. And we're going to go in depth about studying one of those cylinders today in the form of desert termites. And if you think about the factors that, that I think are most important in our quail habitat in the rolling plains, at least, I would list three. That's the trifecta of drought. We all appreciate the impact of drought and dry weather and good rains. Drought, overgrazing. Oh, gosh, we know we've seen lots of that different times, and the desert termites, and the interactions between those three biotic and abiotic forces. So we're going to uh, study those in depth, but I, I ask you, of those three, which of those are under the manager's direct control? If you're a rancher, if you're a wildlife manager, we can't manage a drought. We can't manage desert termites, as we'll find out. We can manage stocking rates, and so we need to be uh, literate of the fact that, uh, again, those interactions between drought, other biotic forces like termites, and stocking rates. So be mindful of that, and we'll have a great discussion on that as we get a little further into the podcast. Our discussion today on, on desert termites uh, originated uh, about a month ago on a Facebook forum called the Grazing Lands Cons Conservation Initiative, and 
my guest today, Dr. Eckert, spoke at some length or remarked at some length there, and I asked several questions and challenged him on some of his thoughts. And so with that back and forth, I think both of us were uh, intrigued by the amount of traffic that that post got on social media. And so I thought it'd make an interesting podcast topic. And so here we are today. So our guest today is a friend and colleague of mine uh, for many years with Texas A&M, Dr. Daryl Eckert. So Dr. Eckert, welcome aboard. We look forward to having you on the podcast today. Good morning, Dale. It's good to be with you. Glad to have you here this morning. Uh, give us your elevator speech, Daryl. How did you I know you're from Noodle, Texas, and that's where you went back to the home ground after retirement there, uh, Noodle, Texas, up in Jones County. But tell us uh, about your journey, your odyssey. Well, my, I was born and raised here in southwestern Jones County. Went to school at Noodle, uh, Horn, Consolidated School District, which, which uh, went by the wayside many years ago. Uh, Earned my bachelor's degree in range management at Texas Tech, and then went on to Colorado State University for my master's and PhD. I uh, I specialized in entomology because when I got to Colorado State, I'd already had all the range courses they offered uh, while I was at Texas Tech. So I got interested in rangeland insects did my master's and PhD research on range insects. And then when I came to, uh, my first job was back at Texas Tech University in the entomology section for about three years. And then I switched over to the range and wildlife management department. I was there for about seven years. And then I moved to San Angelo with the Texas AgriLife Research which at that time was called the Texas Agricultural Experiment Station. And uh, there, while I was there at Texas Tech, my research was largely in uh, the area of rangeland insects. And, and one of them that I, I really keyed in on because I'd been interested in it uh, all of my adult life was desert termites. All right, and uh, again, um... You, you're probably the expert of the of the whole topic of desert termites, at least in the Southwest U.S. Would you agree with me? Well, certainly, as far as I know, at least in Texas, and there's there's some other scientists out in uh, New Mexico and and uh, Arizona that have studied desert termites, and they've done some really good work. But uh, of course, I think my my work's probably the most relative. Uh, the most important relative to ranchers. Okay, and uh, I'm gonna also mention that Daryl, I believe in about 1964, was a member of the National Range Plant Identification Contest uh, by the society, from the Society for Range Management. You might've been a two-time winner at that, so give us just a little bit about those accolades. Yes, yes sir, I was uh, on the Texas Tech Range Plan identific Identification Team in 1965 and 1966. Our team was coached by Dr. Joe Schuster, and we won the international contest both years. Well, and, and 
appreciated you and Jimmy Brown uh, up at our uh, plant appreciation day that we held up at the ranch back up in May. So it was good to see y'all. And again, congratulations on all those uh, notable achievements. Um, our topic today, again, is desert termites. And Daryl, I've, again, you and I have had coffee shop talks on these for a long time. And I often go to a field day, a quail appreciation day, or whatever across West Texas, and uh, I'll point out these desert termites, and then people will begin to notice them, and they'll accuse me of having trans transplanted those things over the cover of darkness. So uh, sometimes people just don't understand what's under their own feet, do they? No, they don't. That, that's, uh, I think people today are becoming more and more observant, but in the past, uh, Anything smaller than a baby calf, a lot of people weren't weren't very interested in them. Well, we're interested but, in those six ounce birds called bob whites and the and blue quail, and of course uh, all the factors that uh, work together to produce a good quail crop. What's some other? What's another common name for desert termites, Daryl? A lot of people call them white ants, and they are definitely not an ant. Termites are more closely related to, to roaches than they are to ants. I've heard them called wood lice before, too. Wood lice. Wood lice is another common name. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, uh, so what's, what's up with them and why now? Well, the reason people are noticing this year is because uh, we've been in, gone through some dry periods and uh, when certain when desert termites come above ground they build these mud cubes around their weeds and around the grass plants and mud sheetings over the mulch and uh, those uh, the mud sheetings and tubes were ex exceptionally abundant this summer up through even even till uh, today, uh, than than in a lot of years, and there were one reason that they're more noticeable is because we had had less grass on the ground, less uh, live grass tissue to to hide the mud tubes and sheetings. So they've been uh, they've appeared to be super abundant all of this summer up through the autumn up till today and uh actually they're they're probably more abundant during a wet year than they are a dry year desert termites are subterranean they have to live below ground because they they, they des uh, dry out desiccate very easily their body walls are very thin and uh they have to maintain a high humidity and they cannot tolerate real high temperatures they uh, when the soil surface temperature gets above about 95 degrees fahrenheit they go underground and uh, so they do a lot of their feeding during the night time these mud tubes are made from finely uh, masticated or chewed up soil particles mixed with organic matter that they've that they've chewed up and mixed with their their own saliva 
and uh, desert termites generate their own water by oxidizing uh, cellulose and plant materials. I didn't realize so they, I already learned something new today. Yes, sir. They're, they 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 uh, they survive on metabolic water, just like a lot of your wildlife species do that too. I think metabolic water is very important in antelope, isn't it? Uh, I can't speak with any expertise on antelope, but on quail, we recognize free water, metabolic water and then uh, preformed water dew and insects. And quail cannot live on metabolic water alone. They're not that efficient, but they can live on metabolic water and preformed water. Uh, that's a, that'll be a topic some other time. Um, Darrell, why should a quail hunter be concerned uh, with desert termites? Well, I've, I've been to many of your quail field days and I've done quite a bit of reading on quail on my own. and. I know that quail are, they've got to have cover. They've got to have cover to get out of the heat, to get out of the cold and to get away from the predators. And uh, desert termites can be very destructive to a quail's habitat because they consume so much above ground plant material. Uh, desert termites eat almost any, any type of plant uh, they do not burrow into wood. They just build their mud sheets around the wood or the mud tubes around small twigs. And they, they scrape away the outer surfaces of that woody material. But they do, they do build their mud tubes around grass leaves and grass stems and weed leaves and weed stems. Even annual broomweed, they'll build their mud tubes up around a uh, annual broomweed plant and completely consume those things all the way to the ground. Uh, another way that they're, uh, okay, by doing that, they reduce the amount of cover that the quail need. And also they build those mud sheetings over the soil surface. Well. All of your weeds and grass seeds, when they're shattered from the flowers of those plants, they fall on the soil surface. And uh, when termites build those mud sheets over the soil surface, I, I haven't documented that they eat weed and grass seeds, but it seems to me like they eat anything that they cover up. So they may reduce the availability of uh, food items for bob white and blue quail let's you mentioned something there that i want to clarify for the audience now folks we're not talking about sub we're not talking about what they technically call subterranean termites that you'd be worried about getting into your house or your wooden structures this is separate species am i correct there daryl that is definitely correct the desert termites will build their mud sheetings uh, up around fence posts and the bases of mesquite trees, cedar posts, uh, barns, and other buildings, but they don't uh, burrow into the wood. They just scrape, scrape on the outside surface. 
And we're recording this, folks, on the 24th of October. And as I walked out to feed my dogs this morning, had just a little bit of moisture. And that really brings on the appearance of the, or the, the visibility of the desert termite, those tubes, because they'll be a dark brown color. And if you, if you walk out there and uh, those, those uh, mud tubes appear to be moist, you can just touch those with your finger. They'll fall about, fall apart and you'll see the, the desert termite scurrying back for cover kind of thing. So you get an appreciation. I'd also encourage you to uh, Google desert termites and be able to uh, get a look at what those critters are so you'll recognize them as you're out in the field. Sometimes, and again, I encourage you to, to be more attentive to this, but when you're going out this first couple of weeks quail season, chances are, as Dr. Eckert mentioned, that you'll see fence posts, you'll see sunflower stalks, and you'll see those mud tubes up to three or four feet high on those things. So uh, just uh, one of those things, um, be more uh, attentive to some of the things that are occurring out there. And folks often ask me, are, are termites good for, are they good quail food? Do quail eat them? And yes, they do eat them. I've only seen, I've only got two photos in my library uh, that somebody has sent me of desert termites in the crop, or one of those from the Midland area, and they were a plum full. So it's it's like quail are uh, literally standing on a bonanza of protein in the form of termites. But I don't think, for whatever reason, I don't think they realize it all the time either, because there's a lot of food out there in those desert termites if they were eating them, and we know what they, how they relish insects. So uh, I guess we need to educate our quail just a little bit, and we'll talk more uh, as. Dr. Eckert mentioned about uh, beneficial or detrimental effects to quail as a result of the disappearance of some of their cover, which is vitally important if you're a bob white. Darrell, what's the distribution of the range of these desert termites? This particular species is uh, only known, has, it's been reported from Texas, New Mexico, uh, Arizona, and Northern Mexico. Now, I believe it's, I'm, I'm almost certain it is present in south, southwestern Oklahoma. Yes, it is. I can attest to that. And in Texas, it's probably uh, limited to the area west of I-35. I got a question for you. So it's kind of the Chihuahuan Desert and, and probably further west in the Sonoran Desert kind of thing. But... Do we have desert termites as we move east into more mesic habitats like the tall grass prairie, or, or do we just we don't see them? Or, or I'm assuming they're there. So, what's your thought on that? I don't know, Dale. I, I think that it, uh, the distribution of termites that's been reported, it, the information has probably been obtained through. Um, insect collections at the major universities. And uh, the entomologist up in Kansas, Nebraska, would surely have collected and preserved desert termites if they had, if they had found them in the tall grass prairie. But I, I've never seen a report of their presence in the tall grass prairie. It may be too, too humid there for them. Um, I just don't, I really can't answer that question. Well, that's a homework question then for our listeners, because I always refer to y'all as our eyes and ears. 
on various uh, phenomena. So uh, would be as, after you've learned how to recognize those mud tubes, uh, be mindful. Uh, most many of you live further east than San Angelo, where I'm at. So uh, give me an email. Let me know what you're seeing and uh, whether or not you see those in, in more mesic, more wet kind of habitats. Daryl, I want to talk about uh, something called biomass or standing crop is another phrase we might use for it. But it's basically how many pounds of this critter are uh, present either above ground or below ground. And if we were trying to do a prescribed burn in West Texas at the Rolling Plains Quill Research Ranch, I'd say, well, we probably need a minimum of about 1,500 pounds of fuel, dry grass per acre, before we'd have a very effective fire. Using that as a reference, about how much biomass of occurs in how much biomass of desert termites do, might we see in a place like Fisher or Jones County? Okay, Dale, we did a study uh, when I was at Texas Tech during the period 1972 through 1974. And our study area was west of Post up in Garza County, up on top of the, right at the side of the Llano Estacado. So we were actually up on the high plains and we we sampled termites by driving a, a piece of four inch pipe in the ground we had the pipe was sharpened on one end and we had a heavy cap made to fit over the top of it and we'd drive this uh, soil coring device into the ground one foot with sledgehammers and then dig it out push the push the soil core out of this piece of pipe and carefully hold it together till we got to the lab and, and we'd count all of the termites and keep the termites and weigh them. And we were able to calculate a population density of termites as well as a biomass, live weights, biomass. They averaged over these three years, 1972 to 74, the numbers of termites averaged about 9.4 million per acre Ooh. and the, their weight was about 50 pounds per acre now for comparison if you had a thousand pound cow on 20 acres that would be 50 pounds live weight of cow per acre so average over those three years we had essentially one animal unit of termites uh for every 20 acres wow. now in a in a dry year the numbers dropped down to a little less than seven million per acre of, of desert termites and they weighed about 38 pounds in a relatively moist year there were the average the an average number of termites was about 12 million per acre and they weighed about 68 pounds per acre. And one of those years, it was a fairly moist September. And the numbers of termites rose to 37 million per acre at a weight of 206 pounds per acre. And these numbers are probably don't mean a lot to a lot of people, but what it means is we had a socking rate of termites that can can be uh, 
at any one point in time may be five times higher than your stocking rate with cattle. We did a feeding, some feeding studies with termites to determine their consumption rate and found out that using that average of about 9 million termites per acre based on what they consumed in laboratory feeding studies, that that population density of termites could consume about 2,500 pounds per acre uh, during the period from April through November. So that would tell you that like on that short grass prairie, the desert termites could potentially eat every bit of the grass and forb uh, material produced by the plants. Well, let's talk about that again. I'm using Jones or Fisher County. I mean, if we had 3,000, 2,500, 3,000 pounds of production that year, we would have had a pretty good year, correct? That's correct. And and again, uh, and, and let me let me take us back. The last time I saw you, and that was that plant appreciation day on May the 19th. And we'd had, uh, it'd been dry most of the winter. Desert termites were already active. And our nesting habitat looked quite pathetic. Uh, we hadn't had any cattle in the last 11 years, but the country looked really hard because of the effect, the grazing, if you will, of the uh, desert termites. Now, then it began to rain, you know, as you recall, back in mid-May and uh, June was decent for us. And so the, the grass was able to get ahead of the termites and our nesting cover and our nesting success increased. But uh, our early nest in April, which we had a record nesting attempt, but the nest success of those was quite low. And I would attribute that to the fact that, again, our vegetation, our nesting habitat, except for prickly pear, was pretty, uh, pretty low. Um, Absolutely. I remember that vividly. It was a very, well, it was just a pathetic situation. It looked uh, grazed, but it wasn't. Yeah. That's right. Looked like it had been, looked like it had been abused. Yeah. But to had many livestock there in, what'd you say, 11 years? Yep. 11 years. So let's delve off into a dilemma then, and that's just talk about the relationship of livestock grazing and desert termites and the balance and, and whether or not we uh, account for the stocking rate of desert termites as we consider the stocking rate for our cattle. You know, one of the old rules of thumb that we've all heard is take half and leave half. How does that axiom uh, measure into the desert termite equation? Well, that old take half and leave half uh, slogan went by the wayside about three decades ago. The, the range animal scientists changed that to take a fourth, leave a fourth for the insects and for damage due to uh, hoof action and feces and manure. And then, and then leave the other, leave the remaining half uh, to be there at the end of the, at the beginning of the next growing season. Uh, so they recognized back in the 1980s or 90s that there are there are other consumers on the out there on the range, 
And I don't know that they necessarily recognized the desert termite problem at that time, but, uh, you know, some years we have enough grasshoppers to, to be equivalent to a cow at about every 20 acres. Uh, but they did allow for one fourth of the current year's production to be consumed by by insects or uh, or damaged by livestock themselves. Now, it was, from from the data that I've discussed with you this morning, it's obvious to me that uh, in certain years those insects like desert termites may take more than their 25 percent they may take their 25 percent and the 25 percent that the rancher has budgeted for his cattle or his sheep and goats to eat and and therefore the rancher has to recognize it that in certain years he may not be able to, to allow his livestock to eat 25 percent of the foot forage because the, the uh, desert termites are going to take more than their 25%. And I'm going to go back to that opening question that I had for our listeners, and that's that trifecta of drought, overgrazing, and desert termites, and ask which of those three are under the manager's control? Only one of them. That's the overgrazing situation, overstocking. And a lot of ranchers, of course, are sensitive to that, but uh, we can't adjust the weather. And we will talk later, but we really don't have any control over the desert termite population. So we got to manage the variable uh, that we can, and that'd be the stocking rate. We're going to discuss that a little bit more towards the end of the podcast. Darrell, let's talk about. Um, Again, relative to livestock grazing and some of your research, and again, as you begin to pay attention, folks, go out there, and if, if your rangeland is grazed or has been grazed in the past at some point in time, flip up some cow patties, and I think you'll be able to see quite a bit of uh, activity on those cow patties. So, Darrell, what is the relationship then? Are those cow patties food plots for desert termites? Well, they definitely attract the desert termites. There's been some discussion of that. Uh, some of the scientists out in Arizona, I believe, like a cow patty creates a a uh, a shade down through the soil profile. It makes that soil underneath the. Okay, they they create a shadow. It keeps the soil a little cooler and a little moister right beneath that cow patty. And that attracts desert termites because uh, because of their need to be in an area with moisture. So cow patties definitely are a, a major food of desert termites. And desert termites do a valuable service by helping to recycle that uh, organic matter in those in the cow patties. They also will build their mud sheetings over deer pellets and sheep and goat pellets. Uh, so they're a major consumer of, of uh, manure and henceforth they are a major 
have a major influence on nutrient cycling. And we're going to talk more about their role uh, in nutrient cycling and so forth as we get closer to the end of the podcast. But, and and this this wasn't in our notes, Daryl, so speculate if you wish. Uh, if we had side-by-side a fence line contrast here, one side being grazed, one side being not grazed, would you expect any difference in the desert termite populations on either side of the fence? I guess, Dale, first thing you'd have to be more specific on grays. What does what does <laughs> what well, grays mean? Is it heavily grazed? Or yeah, let's let's, let's say heavily grazed. I'll take it to the extreme. So heavily grazed on one side and not grazed on the other side of the fence. Would you would you anticipate similar or different populations of termites? I think you would have more termites on the ungrazed because they would have more food. Now, desert termites are a herbivore, just like a cow is, just like a deer is, just like a quail is. Uh, so, I I would I would uh, speculate with a great deal of certainty that the more food that's available for a desert termite, the greater their numbers will be. So, so I think you would have you'd have more desert termites on the ungrazed area, but they, their activity and their abundance would seem to be more prevalent on the overgrazed area. A few days ago, I had it. I've got an area that's just totally barren almost right out south of my front door. And it's range of land that hasn't been grazed in about six, 17 years. Uh, but between the drought and the desert termites, there's essentially no live vegetation there. A lot of termite activity. Uh, we had a, uh, oh, within this area, there's one little island of, of uh, over a blue stem, WW, no, it's uh, B doll over a blue stem. Real beautiful stand of grass, but it's not over probably 30, 30 or 40 square foot. And I got to looking at the abundance of the termite tubes and sheetings on the, the barren area. And then I went over and got down on my knees and looked under that uh, tall grass. And there was just as much termite activity, if not more, under those tall robust grasses than there were uh, out there on that barren area where erosion is actively taking place. So to, answer, to get back to you, answering your question, I think termites would be more abundant where there is an abundance of vegetation, and but they would seem to be more abundant on a severely overgrazed area. And hence, going back to uh, May 19th on the research ranch, again, we hadn't been grazed in 11 years. So basically, we'd built up a uh, carbohydrate reserve, if you will, or biomass there. And the, the desert termites certainly took advantage of it during the, uh, the dry times. Let me get back to my script a little bit here, Daryl. Are certain soil types more, more or less vulnerable to termites? And I would 
I would suggest something. And folks, when we're talking about soil types now, we're talking about the percentage of sand, clay, or silt. So if you've got any training in soils, you understand. But you've probably heard something like a fine sandy loam, uh, which is pretty common, uh, at least on the research ranch. And it seems to be uh, seems to be heavily favored by um, termites. But have you seen any, are there any differences among different soil types? Absolutely, Dale. The uh, termites will be much more abundant on uh, fine sandy loam type soils, soils with a good bit of clay in them, than they will be on a, a sand or a, especially our, uh, like a knobscot fine sand where we have sand scenery oak and post oak. Uh, we, we have a ranch with sand scenery oak on it here in Western Jones County, and you hardly ever see a desert termite activity in that sand. And it's probably because the sand uh, doesn't hold much water and it gives it up real readily to the plants. So when a sand gets dry, it is super dry. But another, another potential problem relative to termites in the sandy soil is that it may not have enough clay in it to stick together when they try to use the sand to build their mud tubes and, and sheetings up over their food. Makes sense. Um, why do, we've talked about why they cover their foods. Uh, it's basically to, or cover their foraging activity because they dry out otherwise. What are their preferred foods, Daryl? And, and do they eat live plants and plant roots or just dead vegetation? Dale, they eat almost every, any kind of organic material, any kind of plant material. Uh, we did a, well, Charlie, uh, the entomologist there at San Angelo. Um, Charles, Charles Allen. Charles Allen did his master's study there at Texas Tech on food habits of desert termites. And he did his, his study on uh, the same uh, land area that I had done all my desert termite research on. He found that on that site, which was a short grass prairie, that slightly less than half of the foods taken by the desert termite was red threon. About a fourth was buffalo grass, and about a fourth was uh, blue grandma. That's and, interesting. Let me let me interject something there because uh, again, it seems to me like where they're at least they're most apparent to me is in those finer leaf grasses. Again, you mentioned buffalo grass, blue grama. Are they uh, are they not as common in places like Tabosa grass or a silver blue stem, or or we just don't notice them much there? Well, I think we just don't notice them. Uh, and those rougher grasses may be uh, not as highly preferred. I don't, I, I can't really address that, but uh, you certainly do not notice the termites as much where you have a larger, robust, taller grasses. That's, that's for certain. But I think, in my opinion, it's just because that uh, of taller stems and big, broader leaves simply hide the activity of the of the desert termites 
as a quail manager, uh, most of us can appreciate that, that we need abundant nesting cover come the 1st of May at the nesting season. And that nesting cover ideally is going to be those basketball size bunch grasses, little blue stem, silver blue stem, uh, with a good amount of uh, leaves and mulch and uh, so forth. Um, is it difficult to main, maintain the cover of, of, of those kind of plants with mulch and standing dead vegetation where you got a lot of desert termites? Absolutely. Yeah, I've, in our research up there on the Yano Estacado, we found that uh, desert termites accounted for 55% of the disappearance of uh, grass leaves during the growing season. And uh, the other 45% of the disappearance was apparently due to decomposition by fungi and bacteria. So not a lot of room for uh, herbivores, or grazing livestock anyway, or, or deer or antelope in those kind of situations in Israel. That's, that's can be true. And another thing that hurts us with the bunch grasses is that you have a severe drought and in the presence of livestock grazing and they, they graze those taller grasses off to the ground or, or close to the ground. Desert termites come in there and, and uh, finish, finish them off. In other words, they build their mud tubes over those stubs of, uh, of the taller grasses and take it to the ground and they graze right right down to the soil surface, if not even lower. And uh, and then you'll get a quarter inch rain and that bunch of grass like climbing grass or silver blue stem will try to uh, send up a shoot. And the, was, before that shoot gets two inches tall, the desert termites build a mud cube over the top of it and totally consume that new growth. And when that happens three or four times in succession, that probably totally depletes your carbohydrate reserves in that grass crown and in the roots. And you do get mortality of the grass plants. There's no doubt about that. Desert termites can kill plants. As, but plants that have been weakened by First of all, by livestock grazing, repeated, repeated uh, removal of the leaf material by grazers, and then coupled with drought, and then those little those little light rain showers, uh, and repeated defoliation by termites just cause the plants to die. I've seen that on my own land. Numerous times in my adult life. Let's talk about below the surface. Uh, what's going on with the roots? And again, uh, you had any training in plant physiology, and you, you know that as the amount of top is taken off the grass, it does have a uh, impact on the root growth and so forth. So, do they eat the roots too, Daryl, or what's going on below the ground? Daryl, we we studied the we had the research plots where we had controlled desert termites with an insecticide called chlordane which is no longer available but 
so we had termite free plots and termite infested right side by side. And for one entire growing season, we would take core samples out of the soil and wash the soil out of the roots. And we saw no difference in root biomass between the termite free and the termite infested rangeland. So our conclusion was that termites must not be very, uh, they must not consume grass roots to any large extent. Now, I'd have to say that, that one little study like that has to kind of be taken with a grain of salt. But we did a lot of excavation down in the soil and look, looking in the, at the chambers and tunnels, and I never saw a plant root go growing into one of their termite chambers or a tunnel. Well, I guess that's good news if they're not attacking the roots. At least we do have an opportunity it's to recover many of the situations. Yeah, if our, if our data was uh, factual, and I like to say, you don't, with a one year study, you probably raise more questions than you create answers. So I wouldn't be 100% certain, but the bulk of the, the bulk of the, uh, tunnels and chambers were in the top uh, six inches of soil and really especially in the upper two and three quarters of an inch. A lot of tunnels and lots of, lots of chambers. But uh, we knew that they leave the surface when the, when the surface soil gets above 95, but they they go down below a foot when a six inches get at uh, 48 degrees. Darrell, we got about 15 minutes left, so I'm going to speed us up just a little bit. Uh, let's, okay. talk about, let's talk about some of the ecological implications. And uh, something that you often hear is that uh, desert termites are a keystone species in many plant communities. So tell us in layman's terms what that means. Dale, keystone species simply means that this uh, this species, in this case the desert termite, uh, it's important because it has a major impact on the ecology of of that site. And the ecology, we're talking about processes such as uh, rainfall infiltration rates, mineral cycling, nutrients cycling, energy flow. Uh, they have a major impact on ecological functions and the structure of the vegetation. So that leads us into a brief discussion maybe on soil health, which again, you've mentioned some of the factors that are involved in that, but things like uh, organic carbon, uh, the aggregate structure of the soil, some technical terms, but um, Again, so uh, desert termites are again are affecting many of those very basic properties like the water or could be impacting basic properties like nutrient cycling and the water cycle and so forth. Absolutely. Well, one thing that we we learned a lot uh, studying the, uh, on these on these research plots where we control termites, we were able to do a lot of research on rainfall infiltration rates and soil properties 
in the presence of termites and in the absence of termites. One, one thing we found was that those termite-free flocks had almost three times more mulch than the termite-infested flocks after four growing seasons. Well, that mulch is really important for uh, rainfall infiltration and for keeping those soils cooler and conserving water, reducing evaporation. Uh, we found that rainfall infiltration was greater on termite-free plots than it was on termite-infested plots. And in contrast to that, runoff and sediment load in the overland flow was greater on the termite-infested plots. So we were losing more water to, to run off and we were losing sediment with the runoff on the termite-infested plots. Uh, we had we had several factors that implied that uh, soil health was damaged by desert termites. Okay, let's for, move from, from that. For, for example, organic carbon was, we had more organic carbon in the upper half inch of soil that, on the termite free plots. We had increased per, capillary porosity increased soil aggregation, and of course, increased surface mulch. So there are many factors that are important for rangeland health that the termites appear to be damaging. Well, let's go from there. And, and if that, um, if that uh, vortex be becomes stronger, it's gonna lead us into what's sometimes referred to as desertification. So describe what, the process of desertification is and, and what role you see that you kind of discuss the role that termites might play therein. Okay. The uh, desertification happens when uh, you, you have drought in combination with uh, livestock grazing and desert termite activity. The combination of these factors reduces the amount of live uh, standing grasses and forbs so you don't have you have less protection of the soil surface you have less mulch to protect the soil surface you start getting runoff and you start in that runoff you lose organic matter and you lose topsoil and you lose our the, the soil the organic carbon content of the soil diminishes and with a reduction in mulch and standing vegetation and uh, a reduction in soil aggregation, the uh, your soil health declines and it your rainfall infiltration rate declines. So rainfall becomes less effective. And I'm gonna. So therefore, you have created a desert-like condition. And that's not good for uh, most of our uh, things that we, products that we try to 
harvest from our rangelands, including our Bob White quail. Let me interject a question. Uh, uh, shout out to Joe Crafton. Joe's uh, president of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. And Joe will sometimes throw out a series of three questions that serve as an acid test for should we do this, should we do that? And those questions are what, so what, and what now? So we've talked a lot about the, uh, the factors and the desert termite populations and the processes that they can affect, which are uh, going to impinge on a number of, of user groups kind of thing. But Daryl, how would you say that desert termites impact the rancher? And the rancher is also the habitat manager for those of us on my side of the coin about quail. How do they impact the rancher who's trying to achieve proper use of his grasses and, and a sustainable level of grass, livestock, and wildlife production? Well, they definitely have a very direct impact, and uh, I think the ranchers and the land management agencies need to recognize that in certain years, it may be impossible to, to achieve proper use. And we're, at, we're, we're, we're working with nature, and we're at the, uh, as managers of the rangeland resource, whether it be for cattle grazing or for bobwhite quail production, we, uh, we're, we're working with nature, and nature throws a lot of things at us, one of them being desert termites. And we have to be very flexible and have to recognize that in some years, it doesn't matter what you do, nothing's going to work. And certain years, you can be the best manager there is, and things might continue to get worse in spite of your in spite of your diligent efforts. Well, it seems to me like again, if as as a livestock manager on semi semi arid rangelands, is there a decision point? I mean, can we look at on May one and say if we're already seeing a lot of desert termites, we say, well. Not going to keep me be able to keep my heifer calves this year, or cut back on my stocking rate of my stalker animals, or whatever that case may be. Is there some kind of decision point that you'd recommend ranchers observe, look at, and say, if I have this on this date, I got to do this? Well, absolutely, they need to make their decisions on their stocking rates. Uh, way back in the growing season because when you get when you've been in a drought all summer and you get up to september and october uh it's not going to matter too much too much rain you get you're not going to grow much forage from from there on into the winter so you need to make your your culling decisions and your reten retention of uh stockers and heifers early and the total number of breeding animals decisions need to be made kind of late summer on how many breeding animals you're going to keep how much or how much culling do you need to do and again from the stakeholders like on my side of the coin you got to be concerned about how much uh, standing dead vegetation we carry in the next spring because those bob whites like to nest in that residual grass from the previous growing season so yeah it's uh it's a big task and it's i always think back to the old ed sullivan show where the guy was 
spinning the plates you know he might have six or eight plates going at one time if you're old enough to remember that and uh, certainly a landowner or land manager does have a lot to uh, to consider and, and try to balance if you will now i'm gonna bring it to kind of a to a close our discussion day by uh, citing a statement from two australian scientists uh, lee and wood in a book 1971 called termites and soils and they've done a great deal of research and, and reviewed the world termite literature and their conclusion was or one of their conclusions was and i quote however it is still far from clear whether termites have a beneficial effect on our soil or whether they're a luxury that mankind cannot afford end quote do you agree or disagree with those australians well uh as you may have detected from this conversation i feel <laughs> basically like desert termites are a problem but uh whether or not they're a luxury we cannot afford we've been affording them so i guess we're going to continue to afford them because there's nothing we can do about them except uh manage our livestock so that the so that the termites won't totally wipe out the vegetation uh and they may have some beneficial effect. My research, you know, shouldn't should not be taken to to mean that desert termites are totally uh, destructive, because they they may have some beneficial roles. But in general, I think their major impact is detrimental to the cattle and sheep and goat ranchers as well as to wildlife uh, management people real briefly daryl um you referenced a little bit earlier that in some of your research y'all had used some insecticides uh one you mentioned is no longer available so uh, not i'm not recommending that we go to that extreme but or maybe you do but is there are there any uh, treatment alternatives for the person that says well i've really got these now that you've brought my attention to them i think they're a real problem what now well, there's some when you when you've lost a high percentage of your live grass plants and and most of your mulch, uh, one thing you can do to ameliorate that situation is the old standby range practices such as range ripping and pitting and uh, furrowing. Anything you can do to create surface roughness. Uh, to enhance rainfall infiltration can be a benefit. Uh, on one of my termite denuded areas here on, on my home place, I uh, this summer did some ripping with a single shank ripper, ripping about one foot deep on about 15 to 20 foot spacings and uh, planting grass seeds in those rips. And we had a 1.7 inch rain here a few weeks ago. And that rain, 1.7 inches of rain, only penetrated about two inches between those rips. But whereas along the rips, right at, right at the rips, that rainfall went into the ground about 30 inches. So that's, so what I'm trying to do is establish a band of dense uh, mid grasses 
every 15 or 20 foot, six foot wide band that will give me a, a million tiny dams to slow down that runoff and uh, enhance rainfall infiltration. It will serve like a seine to keep the organic matter particles from, from going to the creek and the runoff water. And hopefully uh, this band of thick grass will, will uh, get well established and protect my soil and allow me to grow grass for the cattle and the termites. Daryl, anything else you want to share with us this morning? I can't think of anything right now, but I've certainly enjoyed visiting with you. Well, we appreciate, uh, I want to recognize and appreciate your expertise and the hard work and of the various people that helped you uh, over the years with your research and standing on the shoulders of giants, I'm sure. And lament my lament is we don't have any replacements i don't i don't see him coming along for daryl eckert and his love of rangeland entomology so i lament that and uh you raised a lot of questions this morning a lot of brought us a lot of good information so we appreciate that well that just about wraps it up for us but before i let you go you got a homework assignment here's a couple of things i want you to keep in mind keep your eyes open for as you travel a field uh, hunting over this uh, next month or two months. And remember, I always praise you guys and gals for being the eyes and ears of what we see out there. So don't let me down. I need you to, uh, number one, submit your hunting reports. Now, I don't need to know your honey hole, but I'd be interested in knowing if you're seeing two birds or two cubbies a day versus 22 cubbies a day. And just give me a county and you can uh, email that to me at drollins at quailresearch.org. Uh, probably more importantly, though, I'd like to know about whether or not you're seeing any feather piles, any evidences of mortality. Now, personally, I every time I see a hawk flush from the ground, I go check it out. I want to know what that hawk's been eating. But uh, some years, like back in 2018, we had a rash of feather piles. Uh, pretty common. You might see three or four in a day. So uh, keep those in mind. And if you see those, take some photos of it, put a shot shell or put your cap down there next to it so we have some scale of reference. And again, email those to me at drollins at quailresearch.org. And then finally, uh, always be on the lookout for what I call weird quail. Uh, that could be an anatomical uh, problem, uh, a weird beak or something like that, weird plumage. Or and when you clean those birds, always be mindful of the liver. If that liver is not a good uniform dark color, if it looks more like pickle loaf, Put that bird in a Ziploc bag and refrigerate. Don't freeze it and let me know ASAP. I'd like to get that looked at uh, suggestive of bacterial disease. So with that, uh, be safe in your travels. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll look forward to seeing you all next month. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. The homework assignments are duly noted. And thank you, Dr. Eckert, for helping us all better understand the impacts and biology of the desert termite. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast and conversation. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. 
Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.